Hi, I'm Hannah, team manager of the Orange Arrow Players Association, a nonprofit organization with the mission of coaching student athletes to aim for success off the field. Have you heard the news? Orange Arrow is turning 10. Please consider giving a monthly donation of $10 for 10 years of OA at www.orangearrow.org. Make sure to also subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on social media to see how we're celebrating. Thank you for listening. My guy, T Murph, Terry Murphy, 81. What's up, T Murph? How, how you doing, boss? Man, I'm good, brother. I'm happy to be on with you. Good to see you. Good man, to see you. it's good to see you as well, man. You know, living in this time of quarantine. And so more people are getting used to right, communicating right. via Zoom or FaceTime, wherever the case may be. So it's been some time, man. You look good, man. How you dealing with this quarantine life, man? You know what? I'm adjusting, man. It, it was a little difficult, you know, kids being at home. I'm like a elementary school teacher now. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's good, man. You know, whatever keeps us healthy, right? And so, so I, I see you. We got we got something in common. We got a quarantine little scruffy beard going on, man. <laughs> Looking good, right. man. Yeah. So I'm trying, man. It got a couple grays in there, but I, I'm trying. I'm working with it. I'm with you. I got a couple grays. I'm actually looking forward to the <laughs> salt and pepper beard, man. I, I feel like it would make me even more distinguished, man. The, the distinguished gentleman. Exactly. That's how I feel. You know, I'm not trying to cover it up. It is what it is. Embrace it. Bring it on. Embrace it. Exactly. Embrace it. Exactly. And so so before we get deep into like where you're from, your sports background, we gotta have a few warm-up questions or stretch. Being a former athlete, you you understand the importance of warming up and stretching. Got it. Got first question for you cannot straddle the fence. Jerry (laughs) Rice, Jerry Rice or Larry Fitzgerald. So I know you being a, a receiver, a student of the game. Jerry Rice or Larry Fitzgerald? Who you going with? Man, that that's tough. That that's a fourth quarter question. Man. That's not a warm up. That's not a warm up. Oh man. So, whew, that's tough. Jerry Rice, man, he's like a superhero. Can do no wrong. You know, he grew up. I grew up watching him, trying to emulate him. Um, but then Larry Fitzgerald, dude, he's pit alum. So I gotta go with him. Wow. I think if you take yeah, yeah. I think if you take the name and the numbers away and you were just at the combine watching them both run routes, lift weights, jump, catch the ball, Larry's bigger, faster, stronger. So wow. plus the dude has some of the best hands I've seen in the NFL. It's incredible. So, incredible. Yeah. <laughs> it, even though your game model Jerry Rice, <laughs> you and, still go with like this. I said, it's a tough one, but what you know, like I said, you take the name away and you just watch them both go at it. I, I'm going with the bigger, faster, stronger dude. There it is, held a pit, held a pit. Exactly, held a pit. <laughs> Next one for you. If you had to teach a class on one thing, what would you teach? Oh, that's a good question, especially right now in the time we're in. Uh, I'm not a professional in it or an expert but I, I think i would teach a class on inclusiveness because mm. in today's society that's what we need most <laughs> you know it, it's, it's one thing to to ask to be accepted but you know there has to be an understanding of what that acceptance brings uh, the culture of it and you uh it's just so much that needs to be included with just saying okay we'll accept you as equal that, that comes with a lot, you know, like I said, our culture, our understanding, the way we view things. So I think that would be the class that I teach because you see it, you see it all over the nation now. You know, we're asking for things and um, it's one thing to protest, but, you know, you, you have to teach them what it is they're like, what it is they're accepting and what it is, you know, our culture brings and what we're about. Awesome. That that would be a well-needed class, as you said, especially in the climate that we're in now. I once heard diversity and, and inclusion analogy described as diversity. It, it, it's like, so you're throwing a party, right? So it's one thing to be invited to the party. Everything's already set up. Oh, come join me. Come join me. But diversity and inclusion is when you allow me to help plan the party with you. 
Right. And so so we, we both decide what's going to take place at this party as opposed to after fact, oh, come join me afterwards. So uh, diversity and inclusion, that's a class that I'll definitely take if you, if you were teaching. I'm with you. <laughs> Right, right. I'm with you. It would have to be virtually, though. But, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think, you know, that's what the country needs right now. I'm with you. And so you're from California. California mm-hmm. is known for many great things. One of the things, when I think about California, I think about the music. So okay. who is your favorite California native musical artist? Oh, that's easy, man. Easy. That's Ice Cube. Oh. Ice Cube, hands down. I, I know I'm going to get some backlash for this, but to me, he's the greatest artist ever. Ever? Um, wow, you took it to a whole other level. <laughs> ever. <laughs> so, and I say that because, you know, a lot of his his raps, it's, it's my story. Uh, you know, I grew up in a very bad part of L.A., you know, the inner city. I saw a lot of gangs, violence, drugs. Uh, he talks a lot about that. He talks a lot about the struggle. He's very political. Uh I also was raised, like, my parents were very, I guess they really subscribed to Martin Luther King, the the nonviolent way of doing things. Uh, so I read a lot of his speeches and things like that. And then along those same lines, kind of intertwined with Malcolm X, you know, who was saying by any means necessary, we've got to go out and take what we want. And that's kind of what Ice Cube is to me. He's kind of that Malcolm X figure not saying go out and loot and be violent about it, but he's saying, hey, we got to go grab this when we have an opportunity and seize the moment. And that's kind of always been his his method to me or his what he preached when I listened to his music. So, yeah, there it is. He's, he's very artistic. He's very poetic. Uh, but at the same time, he, he does have a message. And, and after, what, five, six concerts and... <laughs> All his, his his albums, yeah, Ice Cube, hands down, is you know my my guy. That's awesome, Ice Cube. Ice Cube's your guy. Interesting, you brought up Martin and Malcolm, and potentially you could probably describe Ice Cube as both. His music is probably more like Malcolm. His his uh, right. his movies, especially in his later years, are well. His movies are yeah, Malcolm X, and his movies are like Martin Luther King, especially like right, the one with right. the kid movie. So he got a little bit of both. Yeah, I no, think I, what's I the mean, movie? You know. are, are we there yet? Is that the little one with, with little Bow Wow in it? I think it was the Are We oh, There is Yet? It, is it Bow Wow? I, I know it's a kid in there. I don't think it's Bow Wow. Okay, but yeah, he, but, he, yeah he, it's he, not Bow Wow. But it's, it's Are We There Yet? But that's more Malcolm. His music, some of, I won't say some of his his titles of his songs, but some of his music that's definitely more Malcolm. <laughs> and so, right. and so, uh, so speaking of Ice Cube, do you think they should make another Friday? You know what? It Friday is a success, I guess, depending on that co-star. Ice Cube has been, he has an eye for talent. So if he could find that next great comedian, because, you know, he kind of gave birth to Chris Tucker. Uh, he put him on the map. Then it was Mike Epps. He put him on the map. Cat Williams. Uh, Mike Wood. Cat, Cat Williams, Williams yep. yeah. Put him on the map. And I mean, I'm sure all those guys had their careers, but they weren't names until they did Friday. So if, you know, he could find that next great comedian, yeah, why not? His, his, his work is, is solid. And so I wonder if he needs to find a next great comedian or just bring all those great comedians back together for, for last Friday and just send it off with a blast. Ooh, now you, you're talking like something like uh, coming to America too. That's the <laughs> Exactly. Oh, yeah, that might be the way to go. It might be. We'll see. We'll see. Hopefully sooner than later. Right. So you mentioned you're from L.A. So talk a little bit more about, you know, where you're from, your childhood, family, high school. I'll throw it back uh, to you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm from L.A. I grew up a couple blocks from USC. Uh, it's kind of, I wouldn't even say lower middle class. It was just a lower class neighborhood. Uh, I was fortunate to have two great parents to help raise me. Um uh, they did a, a solid job, kept me out of gangs, kept me focused, went to Dorsey High School. I think my 11th grade year is when I started playing football, so I was kind of a late bloomer. My 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 heart was always in basketball, but I, I kind of s- stuck with football. Uh, from high school, I went to junior college. And so I'm, I'm going to take you back. I'm going to take you back. So you didn't start playing football until the 11th grade? 11th grade. I was... 
baseball and basketball all the way up till the end. I, it's funny. I started playing football my sophomore year. I was playing basketball, and I think like the midterm grades came out, and I was ineligible, and I was just sitting at home. And when the next year rolled around, I started playing football because by the time midterm grades came around, the season was almost over. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, football was the way to go. Uh, yeah. Plus, I, I sat. It was funny. I sat between Keyshawn Johnson and this guy named Brian Bimbo in an accounting class of all. And all during class, they would just talk football. And mm-hmm. I grew up with both of them, but I was just the basketball guy. So during accounting class, I would hear all these stories from Pop Warner all the way up to the game they had last week, just about you know what they did. They remember this. Oh, you remember that. So that kind of started getting that itch going for football. And, yeah, between listening to them, their stories and just hanging out, that's how I, I went on the football field. How about that? I know Keyshawn was from L.A. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I've NFL known that guy since. Actually, we used to play Little League baseball together. I've known, I knew him as a baseball player originally. Solid dude, solid dude. So, yeah, he's from L.A. And so basketball, L.A., are you a Laker fan? Come on, man. Of course I'm a Laker fan. <laughs> Who's your favorite Laker? Who's your favorite Laker? Of all time? Yes. Ooh, my, my favorite is Kobe. As you can see, I'm representing the Mamba right now. Mamba mentality. You got uh, the Mamba shirt on. Yeah, my, my favorite is Kobe. Uh, you know, I, I I can't slight the guys like Kareem. You know, most points ever scored. He's a great one. But it was just kind of Kobe's approach that, you know, really attracted me to him. His approach, his drive, dude's a fierce competitor, win at all costs. I, I love that about him. And, you know, it's it, just that Mamba mentality. That's kind of what you want to instill in your kids. So because he was that good example for my kids, yeah, I, I just flocked towards Kobe. And so you mentioned baseball. I have I had a love for baseball growing up. So talk about uh-huh. your interest and love for baseball. Like who was your favorite team or favorite athlete? Talk about baseball. What position did you play? <laughs> You know, I kind of played them all. I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades. Um, so I started off at shortstop, and this was probably a, a good message to the kids. I started off at shortstop. That was my, my position. I loved it. And then one day my coach asked me to play pitcher or to pitch, and I had no desire to pitch. I would never done it before, and I kind of put up some resistance, and he kind of forced me to do it. So I get on the mound and, you know, I don't want to embellish the story, but I end up throwing like damn near no hitter from the point where I entered the game as a pitcher. And it was one of those things where. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on. Now, now, did you enter, did you enter the game at the last inning though? No. Okay. (laughs) It might be a little easier to throw no hitter if you got to pitch one inning. I could have, I could have had Mario, what was it? Uh, Mariano Rivera record. Right. No, no, he he threw me in there. It was probably midway during the game. Okay. You know, like I said, I I don't want to embellish, but I I know I did pretty good because from that day on, I was the starting pitcher. Hmm. And it was one of those things I didn't know what I was capable of. He made me step out of my comfort zone, which was that shortstop where I knew I I could feel that. And I actually, you know, he pushed me towards something better. And so it was pretty cool and I remember that that sometimes you have to step out of your comfort zone to do what's best for the team so that was a, a awesome message and that, that to this day it still sticks with me. Did you have a favorite baseball player? Ooh, Growing up? Not really uh, baseball was actually more of my uncles and my, my, my father's thing but I, I just played it because that was the first sport I, I really started uh, Actually, I would probably say Kirk Gibson. I, mm. I love the way he stood in the box, that little hunched over stance, the way he swung <laughs> the bat, he was clutch. So whenever I, I approached the plate, that's that's who I tried to model my game after, look Kirk Gibson in me. Nice. My guy was Ricky Henderson. You couldn't tell me that, nothing. That can't go wrong. Oakland A's, what? <laughs> Ricky Henderson all day. Most bases stole, right? Come on, Ricky Henderson. That. I try to emulate his. Still still in base right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> awesome. And so, so take you back to football. You started playing your junior year. You played. You played as a as a senior. So, how was high school football for you? 
you know, it, it was, it wasn't one of those things I, I can say I really enjoyed. Like I, I just like being around the fellas, dude, just competing, being on that field, being part of that brotherhood. Um, so my senior year wasn't that great as far as the team or record. We went to the playoffs, lost in the first round. My junior year was real good. But, yeah, it was just the camaraderie, the, the relationships you formed, the bond, the competition that drove me. Um, yeah, that was pretty much it. I, I can't say, you know, like I wasn't really into the the whole jock feel, going out and partying, wearing my Letterman jacket everywhere. I just like competing. Now, did you play receiver in high school? No, I was a tight end. <laughs> a tight end. I was the receiving tight end. So run plays, the big boy came in and passed plays. T-Murph, you're what? How tall are you? Man, I am what? 6'1 on a good day? Right, in right. high school, I think I weighed 160. I was about to say, bro, yeah. because. <laughs> but like I said, I, I was a competitor. My first day of practice, because I always wanted to play football, I had the type of parents that, no, you're not playing that violent sport. So they wouldn't let me play. So in high school, like I said, because I sat between these two football-minded dudes and I heard stories all day, I actually went out to practice in a pair. I'll never forget this. They were Nike Moabs. I didn't even have cleats. I went out in some straight cross trainers. Wow. <laughs> and tried out. Tried out for the team. They saw me run. They saw me catch. Next thing I know, they told some guy to give me a helmet. I put on a helmet that didn't fit. Ran a couple routes across the middle. Boom, just like that, I was playing tight end. How about that? How about yeah. that? Tight end. <laughs> so then I had to go home and tell my parents I made the team. I need some football cleats. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you, you touched on it a little bit. So after high school, what was your next step? Uh, you know what? I, I didn't have the grades uh, to get like a scholarship offer. Even I wasn't even considering college. High school is just high school, trying to get through it. And so my next step, I started working. You know, I worked at a car wash. I worked for a grocery store. And then I realized, man, this little minimum wage job thing isn't for me. So I actually, I remember I made a deal with my mom. If you help me get through junior college financially, I promised her I would get a scholarship. I promised her I would get a scholarship. So she, she agreed to it. I went to West LA Junior College really buckled down on my, my, my schoolwork, focus on football. And one of the things I, when I talk to kids about playing sports and always preach that I played football to go to school. I didn't go to school to play football. So playing football, I knew was a way for me to get my degree in criminal justice. I always knew I wanted to get a degree in criminal justice. I wanted to be a police officer. So I was playing football to further my education. I wasn't just going to school just to go hang out with the boys and play football. So, you know, I always preach that to kids. Uh, there was a little method to my madness. Like I said, my heart was always in basketball. If I could, I would probably keep going, pursuing that dream. But everyone always kind of told me I was good in football. So it's like, okay, I'm gonna get to school because my parents didn't have money to send me to college or anything like that. I had to do good at this one thing in order to get a scholarship. And that's what I worked for. So help me understand the switch on the academic focus from high school to junior college. Cause you said you buckled down. Like, right. What was that switch? How, how did your mindset change? Like what contributed uh, to that? It was a lot of focus. It was you, all the things you need to, I guess, be great in football. It took, you need, I had to dedicate myself. I put myself on a routine. So after football practice, it was dinner, then sit at the dinner table and do the homework. It was a routine. I got into this routine to where my body just knew what was going on. My focus was there. And like I said, once I committed to that routine, once I committed to this goal, everything else actually just really started falling in place and it became quite simple. It wasn't like, oh my God, I got to study for this test or it was all these little things. You're putting this piece, this puzzle together and it's building up to something great. So 
it was no different than your the approach to football. If you want to be great, you got to dedicate yourself to it. You got to commit. You got to focus on your goal. And those were all the things I did just to buckle down, like I said, on on the academic side. Awesome. So yeah, that routine and buckling down. That's great. The yeah. one thing you mentioned is that you always wanted to be a police officer. So now oh, yeah. we're going to speak about that a little later about your about your profession. But can you briefly touch on that? Because as a black man, you don't hear that hear that as often, especially when you're at, at a young age that you wanted to be a police officer. Can you speak more to the reason behind that? Oh yeah, it was so in my neighborhood, you know, as Ice Cube would say, the ghetto bird was always up. <laughs> so and that always intrigued me so when my buddies were asked like for christmas my buddy or they're asking for bikes and skateboards i wanted a police camera because i wanted to hear what the helicopter was saying to the guys on the on the ground never got it but that's what i asked for um and then it, it, it also plays a little into you know if you you uh how can i phrase it be the change that you want to see so i saw a lot of police abuse growing up I saw, you know, my relatives being treated unfairly or what I thought was unfairly. And it's it's like, hey, if you want to see change, go out and make the change. You know, be the man in the arena. Uh, don't be the critic in the stands talking about it. Go get your hands dirty. So that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I had a lot of police contacts, good and bad. I always remembered the good ones because I was like, I want to be like that guy. I want to treat my people the way that guy treated me. And yeah, that was my drive to be a you know, police officer. I, I thought it was a noble profession. Uh, I would really love to see more minorities in it. I would love to see us policing ourselves. Just like any great team, a great team, we police each other, right? And same thing in, in the community. I, I truly believe our government should be a reflection of the community. So. I, I would love to see more minorities in policing, but yeah, I always wanted to do it, man. I always wanted to do it the right way because it is a professional. It requires a lot of training. It requires a lot of <clears throat> understanding, a lot of patience, just everything that goes along with being a professional. That's what policing re requires. Great. Thanks for sharing that and giving some of the backstory. We're going to bring that back around because that's really important subject matter, especially in light of what we're facing as a society. And so taking right. you back to your your days in JUCO, what were your steps afterwards? What was my stats? Step, steps. What was the next steps after after junior college? So you... from junior college, she was pretty much on the pit and I stumbled into that by luck. Yeah, how did that work out? Man, it was crazy. So I was getting recruited by University of Nevada, Reno. I can't remember the coach's name, black dude. Uh, he came to West LA to watch me practice one day and I was hurt, but I knew he was there for me. So I was like, man, I'm gonna go catch some punts and you know, give him a little shit, <laughs> do him something. And I did, I, I didn't do much that day, but I just had to showcase a little skill and it was about i don't know maybe a month or so after that we just really hadn't had any communication so i was like oh man i'm not getting a scholarship and coach mushagan called me and he's you know hey i'm coach moose i just accepted the job at university of pittsburgh i reached out to i forget the coach's name but he told me if i need a receiver you're the man to go to and he was like how would you want how would you like to come to pittsburgh I'm like, okay, yeah, that's my really my only trip. <laughs> so I, I, you know, took him up on it, flew into Pittsburgh, man. It was snowing that day. It was crazy. Welcome to the bird. <laughs> right, right. From LA. Right? right. I wasn't prepared for that. Um, Ice Cube didn't rap about that, so how would you know? <laughs> he didn't prepare you yeah, for that. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, it really caught me off guard, but I remember I we were doing I, like a tour of the campus or something and coach Harris it was also his first year he pulled me aside and was like hey let's go back to my office and we went back to his office and he was telling me about the opportunity and then he went like he had a couch in his office and he went and took a little nap on his couch but he left I'm, I'm sure he did it purposely he left these game films right next to where I was sitting 
and it was film of Marvin Harrison, Keyshawn Johnson. So I just start throwing them in the, the VCR and, you know, rewinding and going, watching it play by play. He woke up from his little 20-minute nap. It's like, let's go back. And then, yeah, they offered me a scholarship. And I was like, I'm in. And later on, he told me I wasn't sleeping. I just wanted to see what you were going to do. <laughs> How about that? Yeah, come right, on, Coach. Right. <laughs> that makes sense. Coach Harris, man. Coach Harris is a G. I love that dude, man. Same here. Same here. Wow. So you get the pit. How was that transition from L.A. to Pittsburgh? <sighs> Man, it it was brutal. It was brutal, you know. Uh, it was a big, I don't want to say culture change, but it was a big shock. You know, I'm L.A., I'm Ice Cube all the way, khakis and Chuck Taylors, and, you know, you're walking around and people are laughing at your shoes because they don't know what Chuck Taylors are. Right. And I'm being defensive, <laughs> laughing at their new balances and, <laughs> and things like that. Uh, there was one day... I thought it was freezing. I remember I got on the, the bus, the shuttle, and I had on this big goose down jacket. And I sat down next to this old black dude. I, I'll never forget. And he looked at me and he was like, young blood, where are you from? <laughs> huh? He's like, where are you from, young blood? It's like, L.A. He was like, oh, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> like, what you mean? He was like, it ain't cold enough for that jacket. <laughs> I'm like, man, it's like, 38 degrees. He was like, I know, it ain't cold enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, yeah, just little things like that. It was so night and day from where I was from. You know, Pittsburgh's always overcast. I was like, man, I just want to see the stars. I just want to get in my car and drive 20 minutes and be at the beach. And it was none of that. So it's a different lifestyle. Big difference. Yeah, Huge difference. Huge difference. Completely different lifestyle. Now, did you ma major in uh, either criminal or administrative justice? Criminal justice. You did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like I said, I, I always knew that was the route I wanted to go. It was just a matter of me, like, really focusing on my education and realizing how important it was to me. But yeah, once once I came to that conclusion, it was full steam ahead. Let's go do this. Get this degree be a police officer. And so when I came to Pitt, you were, it was your senior year. And yeah, yeah. T Murph 81, I mean, you were <laughs> so precise with your routes. I mean, you really put up some serious, significant numbers at the mm -hmm. University of Pittsburgh. I mean, you were by far, you were a baller, our top receiver. And so, with so many fond memories, share a few of your fondest memories on the field at Pitt. Oh, you know, it's funny uh, because a lot of my memories at Pitt aren't game related. Mm. They're practice related because I'm all about relationships. I'm all about the bond with my brothers. And I remember Coach Harris telling us one day at practice, like, you're going to meet your best friend here at the university. You're going to meet the best man in your wedding. You're going to meet your lifelong friend. And, and it all held true, you know, two of my closest friends to this day, I consider on my brothers is Jackie Womack, Trey Creighton, you yeah. know, both of them. Yeah, great guys, great so, guys. Fellow number seven, yeah. my dog Trey. That was my yeah, exactly. uh, my roommate my freshman year at Kent when I wanted to leave, man. Trey helped me stay, man. My guy, shout out to my guy, Trey. Uh -huh. Yeah. So, yeah, it was all about the relationships. Uh, it was just every day in practice. I still remember Billy West yelling at me for missing run blo blocks in practice. My guy, uh, B. West. Dude, oh my God, I could go on and on. DJ, funny thing about DJ Dinkins, uh, when I got there, he was a quarterback. And DJ, then they moved on to safety. Then they moved on the linebacker. And I could tell, I, you know, my job as a receiver was to block the force. And DJ was always the force for my side. He's 6'3", 6'4", 220 pounds. I'm a small dude. So in the beginning, when he was making that transition, I didn't mind blocking DJ because I could tell his heart wasn't in. He didn't buy into it. But man, one day something clicked in that dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I do strong. DJ was like, hey. And he became a beast. And I remember like trying to block him in practice. And it, it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But it prepared me for, you know, the other teams because he didn't take it easy on me. Same thing with 
Phil Clark and Ernest Coakley, man, John Jenkins, Wild Style, Curtis McGee. Man, those guys never took it easy on me. But it was because of, you know, that, that camaraderie, them pushing me to be good or be great, whatever it is, that, you know, I'm forever, like, indebted to those guys. I love them with all my heart. And, yeah, it's that's what I remember about Pitt. It's, it's not the game. could care less about the numbers, the stats, and all that. But them relationships were critical in my development. So, yeah. Well, and, and I appreciate that. And, and, and I'm that's same here. Some of my best friends are from the University of Pittsburgh, and that's some of my right. strongest relationships. I'm not going to let you bail out of this, though. <laughs> On the field, man, at least the West Virginia game, man. You could talk about that one. I can see you backpedaling the end zone now. Let's go, 8-1. Talk about that yeah. game, then. You know what? That, that was a big game. Uh, it's one of those things, and, and I hated to see the rivalry go, go away because you don't understand it until you're in it, especially me being from L.A. Like, we have USC, UCLA, and you know it's a battle, but you haven't been in it. So... I remember maybe it was two weeks or the week leading up to West Virginia, all these former players just started appearing at practice. And after, you know, at the end of practice, Coach Harris would bring them up and let them speak. And it was, man, like hatred for these people, you know, for West Virginia. Like, hey, this is our competitor. This is going to be the biggest game of the year. And, you know, we played Miami when Miami was playing for national championships. And West Virginia was too, but they weren't Miami. So leading up to that week, that game, it was just building and building and building. Then we get to West Virginia and the crowd is just, man, unruly <laughs> to say the least. They're, man, it, it was bad. West Virginia fans, they, they should be ashamed of themselves. So first quarter, uh, I think I caught like an out route. And I remember the corner, Charles Fisher, he told me that was my last catch of the game. Like, oh, really? Already? Okay. First quarter? That's how we're doing it? Okay. <laughs> so he's talking and talking. To, and you know me, I'm a humble dude. I don't talk a lot. At all. But, yeah, he told me that was my last catch of the game. So on that last play, when I caught, the, you know, I think it was five catches, three touchdowns, that was me showing him, hey, this is my last catch of the game. Ah, in the end zone. Ooh, so that, drop the yeah, mic. Yeah. <laughs> Mamba out. Let's go. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's me holding the ball out. Like, hey, this is my last catch of the game. So, yeah, it was pretty cool. I and, love that. And, and then afterwards, you know, the frozen beers they're throwing at us and pennies. And, it was crazy. And, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. It was really, but yeah. I loved it. That's college. That's the college atmosphere. Yeah, I remember when Coach used to say, so West, West Virginia, the coaches say, hey, we win. Y'all throw your helmets on. Shoot, no matter what, on and off the field, make sure your helmets on because they're going to throw stuff at you. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, so when we were driving, because I think it's two hours away from Pitt. Somewhere around the neighborhood. Bus, load up. And as we're driving, there's people on the overpass with signs, West Virginia go, you know, F Pitt. And yeah, it was crazy, man. I, I wasn't prepared for it, but I, I'm glad I got to experience it. The backyard brawl was something. It was, it's legit. There it is. There it is. Hell to Pitt again. <laughs> Hell to Pitt again. Exactly, awesome. And so, so, so I'm, I'm taking you back now to the um, your professional career. And so, how did you actually get into law enforcement? Uh, it was a, it was actually a long time coming. Uh, when I graduated from Pitt, I actually had no desire to leave Pittsburgh. I felt like I had established strong roots there, and I applied for the Pittsburgh Police Department. I'm going through the test and I'm doing phenomenal. I'm like top three in every test they I, I had. And they went on a hiring freeze mm. and it sucked. Cause I was like, okay, this might take a while. So I started Team Team I'm going to stop you there because I, I think this is an education moment. So you talk about okay. tests. Can you speak to some of the tests that you had to go through? Uh, obviously there's the physical agility test. There was a written test. It was, uh, I don't want to say like basic reading, writing comprehension. It's a little bit above that, but yeah, there's some reading, writing comprehension, uh, probably some math, some memorization stuff in there. Um, so yeah, it was it was a process. There's psychological tests you, you gotta you gotta take, um, and it's something you really you know to be a police officer, to 
be a professional, you really got to prepare yourself for it. You got to know what your end game is and, and how you're going to get there. So all along the way, I was preparing myself for this. And yeah, I, like I said, I was just crushing those tasks. Obviously, I was fresh out of college, so physically I was fit. Um, I had pretty much excelled in my criminal justice classes at Pitt. Uh, again, it took a lot of focus to get there. Once I first got there, I was just loving the college life and grades start slipping. And I remember a couple phone calls from the coach like, why are you answering your phone? Aren't you supposed to be in class right now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple of those phone calls. But, you know, after a while, it was, yeah, hey, let's let's focus and, and get through this. And, it, you know, I actually got tutors because I, I really needed to get my grades up. And I really wanted to understand the principles of law enforcement and things like that. So, you know, by the time I, I got to the point where I was testing, I, I was prepared for it. Awesome. So you said in Pittsburgh is a hiring freeze. So then? Yeah, so there's a hiring freeze, and I'm like, this might take a while. So I got a couple, I think I had a loss prevention job at Lazarus, another security job somewhere else. And eventually, I there was a death in my family. It was my granddad, and me and my granddad, super tight, super tight. Um, but I couldn't afford to fly back home. And, you know, I, I ended up missing his funeral. And then it was at that point, I'm like, okay, Pittsburgh has a hiring freeze. I'm not doing what I want to do. I'm going to just go home and pursue my goals there. That way I could be closer to the, my family if something like this ever happened again. So I moved back home and started that process all over again, testing. And, yeah, I joined the, the just the right department. I joined Culver City Police Department. And, yeah. The rest is history. Been there ever since and love it. So how far is Culver City from L.A.? It's actually with, within Los Angeles County. Okay. It's like pretty much, I would say, 12 miles from or west of downtown. Okay. About maybe three or four miles east of the beach. So it's in between downtown and the beach. And so, so how long have you been in this field, this profession? 13 years. 13 years. Wow. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's some, some yeah. significant time. It, it goes by quick, but <laughs> yeah, and, it's and a so, lot. And so, um, so you mentioned earlier, like the importance of more black people get into this uh, profession. Can you speak more to that and the importance of that? I, you just see it a lot in today's society. Like, it's great that we're out there protesting and marching for what we want but in order for us to really affect change we gotta we gotta get a seat at the table there's there's no other way around it you know the people in power they're not going to relinquish their power because we're walking in the middle of the street we got to get a, a seat at the table you know it'd be nice where when these decisions are coming down that affect us that we're at the table when those decisions are being made so, you know, we got to really get into those three branches of government, the judicial, the legislative, the executive. We got to be the judges. We got to be the lawyers. We got to be the enforcers of the law. And and at some point, and that's why I love what you're doing for Orange Arrow, this, this younger generation, they're going to be our change agents because they, they see the uprising. They, they hear what's going on and, you know, hopefully we can influence them to, hey, get a seat at the table, become a judge, become a lawyer, become a police officer, a cabinet member, a Senate member, a council member, so that way you can truly affect change. You can truly affect policy. And, you know, so it's not just minorities in law enforcement. If you want social reform or, you know, just the criminal justice reform, then you, Teddy Roosevelt's speech, the man in the arena, get out there, do it, be the change you want to see. Great. So you also made a statement earlier about policing ourselves. What does that mean? Right. Um, it's, it's just, you know, like I said, I, I equate it to a great team, effective team. You just learn how to police each other. Um, I can, and I, I don't want to, you know, speak, I hate 
putting other men's or women mouths in my name or names in my mouth because I don't know them. But the entire situation with Drew Brees, for example, uh, when he, I guess, brought it up that the protest was about the military and it was like, I, I wasn't mad at the guy. To me, I took it as an opportunity to educate the guy. You know, because no one really understands what it's like to be us, but us. Uh, so I couldn't expect him to do it. I, I love Drew Brees. The first authentic NFL jersey I ever bought was a Drew Brees jersey. But it was more like, I get it. He's he's not he's not black. I'm a black police officer. And sometimes just from growing up, I still get a little nervous when police people, when police officers are behind me. You know, like, oh, man, I'm going to get stopped. What am I going to say? Yada, yada, yada. But that just built up over years and years of this happening to me. And, you know, no one will ever understand that until you're in it. You don't understand that trauma, the oppression that we feel growing up in inner cities and communities because you're not there. So it's great to have an ally like Drew Brees, but at the same time, no one understands it but us. So if we can police each other and have a better understanding of what this is, uh, then I, I think the job would be a lot easier, smoother. Uh, one, you eliminate that whole racial component because as long as you know the majority of the officers are white, police in black communities, there's always going to be that racial component there, whether it's you know fair or unfair. I'm not here to say what it is. But at least you can start eliminate that that tension that you know that's building up around the country and and yeah it's it's just you know it's an understanding you know and it's an education and one of the other things is there's great white police officers out there but at the same time some of my fondest memories as a police officer is sitting in a car with a guy and having those uncomfortable conversations about race I don't know if I changed his mind. I'm pretty sure he didn't change my mind, but we have that conversation. So we have an understanding of, okay, I, I kind of see what it is. I, or I can understand your perception. Hopefully you understand mine and now we're better for it. So yeah, that's, you know, I, I just think we really have to police ourselves. And like I said before, any public service should be a reflection of the community. That's good. That's good. So would you would you suggest either additional training or like you mentioned the importance of having conversations, those uncomfortable conversations? Would you uh-huh. would you suggest or, or, or maybe there's some programs already out there that are for those who are law enforcement to, to have those courageous conversations and then even bridging that gap between the community and those that are in law enforcement. So either are you aware of, of anything that's already happening or would you suggest those type of conversations to be purpose, purposefully had and, and, and created in a safe space? Uh, you definitely have to have the conversations. I, I can't really speak to other police departments, you know, because it'll be kind of reckless or naive. I've never worked anywhere but Culver City. But I do know the Western states, California, Nevada, Arizona, for example, in my opinion, we're far more progressive in policing than the Midwest and the East Coast from what I've seen. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with, you know, our public, we're very diverse. So we do do a lot of training. Uh, And that's why, you know, this whole defunding thing, I'm not sure how I feel about it, because in order to have these trainings, in order to hire more uh, diverse culture, in order to teach inclusiveness, you need the money to teach it. You have to send these officers to training. You have to send them to classes. We go to the Museum of Tolerance to learn about, you know, not only the Jewish culture, but they have a section about black history. So we 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 do that training. It's part of our standardized training. And that's what we have on the West Coast. We have standardized training where you have to check all these boxes before you become a police officer no matter what department you're at, you know, so those are things we do here to, to raise the bar of, of our profession. And yeah, I, I think it should be done all over the country. I think everyone should have this standardized training 
And not only once you go through it, it should be continuous because you're always learning. Every day on the job, you're going to learn something new. You're going to see something you haven't seen just because people are unpredictable. And the more you're equipped, the better educated you are, you can handle these situations better because it's like, okay, I, I know something about this. I might not be an expert in it, but at least I could kind of mitigate this situation instead of being so stressed out because I've never seen it before. I have some knee-jerk reaction or overreact. You know, you can rely on your education and your training a little bit more and kind of diffuse it. So, yeah, it's critical to see where we go in the next couple of years. Yeah, it really is. Uh, it's interesting you brought up the uh, defund the police notion. And I think one of the things that would be helpful if, if, if there was more transparency on, on as far as training, police officers go through mm -hmm. the additional resources where the money is being spent. And because you, you made the statement that, you know, from your vantage point and you, you only worked in that area that you all may be more progressive than other states. And so if there's something that you all are doing that works, maybe other states should be adopting it or vice versa. And so bringing more transparency to the process and then say, OK, this is why you need X amount of dollars or Actually, maybe you don't need that full amount. Now, now we can steer it towards community relations or or even more diversity and inclusion initiatives. Um, and I think bringing more transparency to the entire process is something that would be um, helpful. Yeah, I, I mean, I, for the most part, I, I think we're pretty transparent. There's not much going on that you guys don't see. There's a stigma that goes along with policing, you know, mm -hmm. behind a thin blue line and all that stuff. Right. But dude, a, a lot of it, it's, it's all right there. You know, like I said, we have a, uh, a standardized training. You could go to this California post and I think it's police officer standardized training and see what the requirements are. And, you know, I'm sure council meetings, they, they go over the budget It is, you know, everything isn't hidden. It's, it's not some, big fars or anything mm -hmm. like that it's just and and i get it because like i said i grew up in the, the inner city there's so much history behind it there's so much ah, i don't even know what anxiety or i i don't know what the word is that you know we don't trust the process because it hasn't worked for us yeah. and until we start seeing the results we want we're, we're not going to trust the process um you know, because we, we see like the disparity between minorities getting sentenced or getting stopped and other races. And and yeah, it, you know, it's, I I don't know if defunding is going to change all that. I think the change is going to be people who, who are actually doing a job, who are actually making the laws, who are actually enforcing the laws. That's where the change is going to happen. But yeah, I, I don't think, you know, just I, I yeah. I don't see how defunding is going to improve the situation at all. And, and so uh, one thing you said as far as the people and one thing that's important with Orange Arrow is being intentional about diversity and inclusion. And so oh. we believe that we can start to bring young people from a diverse group from gender, um, color, geography, economic status. We start to bring those young people together. So when they become power brokers, when they become board executives at, at the at Coca-Cola or a judge or working in law enforcement or a manager at Best Buy, hopefully those barriers are starting to be broken down because they've been exposed to each other at a younger age. So again, being intentional about, intentional about diversity and inclusion. And so with that, with Orange Arrow, our mission being coaching student athletes to aim for success off the field, off the track, out of the pool, off the court, wherever the playing arena may be. Why is the mission of Orange Arrow and the work that we're doing, why is that important? Being more than an athlete. You know, because like I said, we, we, in order to make change, we have to get a seat at the table. I love the fact that you guys are mentoring these young people to go out and be successful. At Culver City, I was part of, it was a group of young black entrepreneurs. Uh, and what it was, it was like 10 or 12 middle school students and I would go to their middle school and we would just have a conversation about any and everything. The, these young kids drove the conversation. I was just kind of mediated or keep them on track, but 
I was an open book. We talked about everything. We talked about law enforcement, the videos they see, social media, yada, yada, yada. And it's just important for, I, I want to say young black men, but just young men in general to have some guidance, to have someone who can tell them what the pitfalls are, or, you know, just so they can recognize it sooner instead of falling into that trap. And that's what I've always loved about Orange Arrow. Like I told you, I followed you guys from afar. Uh, and anything to help the youth develop to become successful so that they could have these positive role models or influence or just someone they could talk to when a parent isn't around. Because, you know, sometimes life is about moments. And in that moment, you might need someone to talk to, but, you know, you grew up in a single parent home and mom's at work or dad's at work. And you, you miss that opportunity to have that healthy conversation with a young kid. And if, you know, you guys can, I guess, supplement that, I guess, I don't want to say lack of supervision or because, you know, parents got to do what they got to do. They just can't be there all the time. But if you guys can be there to fill that void in a kid's life, man, I, I think it's superb, bro. I, I love it. I, I encourage it. I support it. You know, I told you I'm an ally of yours, whatever you need, whenever you need, you holler at me because we, we got to get the youth to understand like, hey, you're you're destined for something great. And you can see it, this this movement that's going like ride this wave, educate yourself, get a seat at the table and influence change. So awesome. I'm. I'm I'm a little too old to be doing all that. So, yeah. Now, <laughs> <laughs> nah, with you, man. Nah. Yes, yeah. Can't yeah. teach your old dog new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> Team up, I appreciate you, man. Uh, a great thing that's been yes, running through here is the importance of diversity and inclusion. And so, yes, whether, from, whether they're from the suburbs, the inner city, black, white, Asian, it doesn't matter. We start to bring young people together. Hopefully, we'll have a better society. Team Earth, yes, thank you for your time, bro. Thank you for all that you do for the community. Thank you for your support of Orange Arrow. I look forward mm -hmm. to catching up soon. Oh, man, you know it's all love, brother. Anytime you need me, I'm here, bro. Thank you, boss. Appreciate right. you, dog. My guy, my guy. I used to lock you down in practice. Talk about practice, though. Nah. <laughs> all love, 81. All love, 81. Yes, sir. My dog. All right, man.